Well, good morning, everybody. And those of you joining us online, thank you for being here. It's, it's great to be here with you guys. I, I want to make one more mention. Cheyenne said it, uh, but I want to make sure that, that this didn't get lost on anybody. Before you leave today, if you can, just stop by the, the, uh, next to the connection point, the prayer boards. And even if you don't have a prayer request to write down for any of your kiddos, I would invite you, before you leave, just spend a few minutes there and grab a name of somebody that's on that board or a prayer request that's already up there. Just grab one of them in your mind and take it with you throughout this week and just be in prayer for these kiddos as they go back to school so that even during the week, even when we're not physically or together online, however, that we're still together in prayer supporting our kids as they kind of get back into the groove of, of getting back into the school. So today, we're, we're wrapping up the series that we've been in for the past month called Be Cool. You know, we, we have this like deep dive into self-leadership at, at critical moments in life, divisive moments, high-pressure situations, all of that sort of stuff. Um, we, and we began with looking at our frame, how the, our view, our view of, of people, our view of ourselves, our view of God, how that's going to say a lot about how we handle the pressure. We looked at our time, how we lead ourselves and our scheduling, that's going to dictate how we handle ourselves in, in some of these moments. And we also looked at uh, conflict. Last week, we talked about the fight, how you fight and how, how all of those things reveal a lot about who you are. Today, what I want us to do is take all of that and lump it together and figure out what all of this looks like together. So this is where I want to begin in your notes. My frame plus my time plus my fight equals my character. See, your character, that's the thing that's revealed when the pressure is at its highest, when the moment gets super, super tense. How you, how you see other people, how you handle your schedule, how you approach conflict, when the, when the moment gets tense... That's when your character is revealed, when you don't have, you don't have the chance to, to prepare a response and all you get is that knee-jerk reaction. You know what I'm talking about? Well, guess what? That knee-jerk reaction, that's your character, like it or not. You're walking through the grocery store. You see a $20 bill on the ground. What do you do? Do you pick it up and, and put it in your pocket? Or... Do you look around to see if the person who dropped it might still be around there? What do you do? How you handle yourself in that moment is going to say a lot about how you view others, how you view yourself, how you handle your time. You're in an argument with your spouse, and they're calling you out on a number of things, and you either you fly off the handle, or you shut down completely, or worse yet, you wait till you're with your friends after the fact, and you start to kind of talk trash about your spouse and the fight that you just had. How you handle yourself on the other side of a fight, guess what? That's going to say a lot about your character. Simply put, if you, if you want to get honest with yourself, if you really want to understand what your character is like, ask, ask, a, ask a spouse, ask a friend, ask a, ask a trusted friend or a family member say, hey, when you know I'm under stress and the moment doesn't go the way that I want it to, how do I handle myself? What do I do? They'll tell you. Think about, think about some of the most difficult moments for you in this past year. Think about that moment in time and just imagine for a moment that somebody is in the background rolling film on you. And then... Imagine that video played on this screen. Would you be okay with that? How many of you could, could watch yourself and replay at some of the difficult moments over the past year and say to yourself, you know what? I'm, that was a difficult moment, but I'm happy with how I handled myself in that moment. Could you say that? So I want to begin with just a, a working definition of what we're talking about here with character. It's not a perfect definition, but it, it, it'll give us something to, to launch off of. So in your notes, my character is the, it's the mental and moral qualities that are unique to me. Now, as we're having this conversation, if you're already getting a little uneasy about this conversation, that's okay. 
I don't know that I've met anybody that would say 100%, hey, I've got no character flaws. I am 100% perfect. Nobody says that, right? We all got character issues. We all have flaws in our character that, that we battle. But the good news is this, you're not stuck there. You're not stuck with those character flaws. Like God has not been about the business of allowing us to just to wallow in our own brokenness. The Holy Spirit is always at work within us, continuing to develop us. As long as we got a heartbeat, as long as we got breath in our lungs, God is about the business of helping us grow into more mature versions of who we're supposed to be. But it's going to take some work. It's going to take a lot of work. Imagine... Tonight, before you go to bed and you go to brush your teeth, imagine using the opposite hand. Think about how that would feel. <laughs> Think about if you're writing notes with the opposite hand. Think about those things. It's going to feel really weird because for so long, you've trained yourself to operate a certain way, to brush your teeth with a certain hand, to write with a certain hand, and to, to switch to something else, it's going to feel very different. Because you see, by now, it's become an instinct. If you go outside and go out to your car and open up the door, think about all the muscle movements it's going to take to do all of those things. But you don't think about it, right? You just do it. It's instinctual. By now, how you respond in conflict and high-pressure situations, guess what? It's become an instinct for you. But if you're willing to do the work, God can change your instincts. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for, for being a God who, who meets us where we are, not, not just in this space, but you meet us individually where each one of us is in this life. And Father, we thank you that, that you don't stay there with us, that you, you create a vision for each one of us about how you desire for us to grow, how you desire for us to change, to mature, to get better instincts to get a better understanding of your character and to model our character after yours. So, Father, our, our prayer today is that you speak to us, that you use this time to shape us into people that follow Jesus just a little more closely. In your son's name, amen. In your Bibles, I want you to open up to Judges chapter 4. We're going to finish up this series. The last few weeks, we've looked at a different character. Today, we're going to actually look at a number of characters. There's a whole lot that we can get from Judges 4 and 5 about this conversation. But before we dive into this, I, I, I want to set the scene real, real quickly so that we understand what we're diving into. So in this story, the Canaanites are oppressing the Israelites. Okay, so the Canaanites are bad, Israelites are good. And the time frame we're looking at is roughly 13th century, 12th century BC, give or take. Here's why that's important to know. That's about the time frame we're shifting from the Bronze Age to the Iron Age. I understand some of you, when you hear conversations like that, <laughs> you check out because it's, it's very boring to you. I promise you this is important information. Here's why this is important. Iron has now become the latest in warfare technology. And it's changed the game of how war is fought. Also, at that same time, as we go from the Bronze to the Iron Age, we have the three major world powers at the time, the, the Babylonians, the Greeks, and the Egyptians, all three have collapsed. And so you enter the Canaanites into this situation. They're looking around the Eastern Mediterranean, and they're, and they're thinking to themselves, hey, this is our time. This whole area is ripe for the picking. All the big dogs have fallen. Why not us? Because guess what the Canaanites also have access to? Iron. And lots of it. They've got the best and the latest in warfare technology. That's the context we're diving into when we get to the book of Judges. Now I want you to meet the characters you can, that you're going to hear from in the story. And the first is Sisera. Sisera is the main bad guy. He is the general of the Canaanite army. But he's also a fierce warrior. He's fought many battles, and he's got an undefeated record at war. He's caused many countries to collapse. Every country he's fought, he's defeated. He's got 31 kings following him. This is how powerful he is. And not only that, there's, there's this legend that surrounded the mighty Sisera. The legend was that his voice was so strong that when he spoke, the walls would shake and the animals would fall dead. Legend was also around his beard. He had a legendary beard. 
It said that whenever he would take a bath in the Kishon River, when he came up, he would have caught a lot, enough fish in his beard to feed his whole army. It's probably not true. But you get the picture, though. Like when somebody's saying that, that legend about a person, you get the idea of the type of fighter that he was. But he was also ruthless. He was a plunderer. He was a rapist. Simply put, he was a professional at violence, and he was good at his job. Now, what's interesting about Sisera is that he's not even a Canaanite. He's actually part of a group called the Sea People. The Sea People were the people that were responsible for bringing down those big powers in the Eastern Mediterranean. If you remember the Philistines in the Bible, they were Sea People. So, Sisera is kind of like a hired gun for the Canaanites. He's the outsider. He's a, he's a mercenary, so to speak. The next character I want you to meet is Deborah. So Deborah is an Israelite judge and a prophet. Now, for the last few weeks, we've talked about different judges and how they were local leaders for different tribes in Israel. That's who Deborah is. But not only that, she's also a prophet. So she's respected for her leadership and her intellect and her wisdom of being able to discern what God is saying to the people. And her name suggests that she was a fiery woman. She was a woman of strength. And as we'll quickly find out, she was probably more than just a local leader. Chances are she's more like a national leader. But we'll, we'll talk about that in just a moment. But spoiler alert, just so you know, as far as Deborah goes, all of the judges we've looked at so far, they haven't given us the best leadership model. They've given us the how not to lead yourself well. Deborah, she was one of the good ones. She was a great leader. She led herself and others well, and she led with class. The next person I want you to meet is Barak. Barak is the general of, ten, of the 10,000 Israelite army. He's a good guy. And what we know about Barak is that he's, he's exhibited humility under pressure. He exhibits courage by willingly going into a battle that he's outmatched. And he's got the influence to convince 10,000 Israelites to do the same. And the last character I want you to meet is Jael. She's the outsider in the story. She's not a Canaanite. She's not an Israelite. She's not part of the sea people. She's kind of out on her own with her family in a tent that they set up out in the middle of nowhere, so to speak. And her family, they are from the Kenites. Here's why that's important. The Kenites had one very important skill. They were really good at working with iron. And so chances are, given, given their skill and their location, her husband is probably like an arms dealer. And chances are, the Canaanites and Sisera are probably his customers. Okay, so those are the characters. That's the backdrop of the story. I want to dive in there. It judges chapter 4. It begins, once again, the Israelites, they, they've fallen away from the commandments of God. And so there in verse 2, it says, And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jobin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Heroshet Hagoyim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron. And he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. So Scripture takes time to point out that he's got chariot, not just chariots, but chariots of iron. They're letting you know that he's got the latest in warfare technology, and he's got a lot of it. He's a formidable foe. And then there in verse 4, we meet Deborah, and it says that she's holding court near Bethel. In verse 6, it says, Deborah sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh, Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from your people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun, and I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jobin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Now, I know it's easy when you read a passage like, in the, like that in the Bible and you read all of those names of places and peop, of people and rivers and everything like that, it's easy just to kind of gloss over that because there's really, there's no point of reference for you in that. But it's important information. I want to take a moment to, to unpack why that is. I want to show you a map of the Eastern Mediterranean. 
So this is the area that we're talking about. If you remember, I said, hey, Deborah's probably a, a national leader. She's not just a local leader. Here's how I know why. At the beginning of that chapter, it says she's holding court in Bethel. That's here. And then she summons Barak, who's living in Kadesh. That's all the way up there. And immediately, he comes to her. She summons him, and he comes to her. Not only that, she has him gather troops from Zebulun and Naphtali. And that's also at the upper part of the Israelite territory. She's this far away, but as soon as she calls, they answer. They respond. They don't deliberate. They move. That's what leadership looks like. That's true influence. And fun fact, it mentioned the battleground was going to take place near the Kishon River. You see that blue line there. And it's actually going to take place at this place called Megiddo. That's an important place. Not just for this battle, but this happens to be the battleground for lots of wars. A lot of wars are waged at that very spot. So much so that there there was a belief that the final battle of good and evil was going to take place there. And that's why we have the term Armageddon. It comes from that town, Megiddo. So that's the world that we're looking at here where, where the battle is going to happen. And so let, let's check out Barak's response there in verse 8. Barak says to Deborah, he says, hey, if you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. I love, I love the response. It's, it's a good response. He's not saying, hey, Deborah, why don't you take care of it? Why don't you deal with it yourself? He tells Deborah, he says, okay, are you willing to double down on what you say God is saying to us? Are you willing to put some skin into the game? Because if so, I'm in. How does Deborah respond? In verse 9, she says, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. So Brock is able to assemble this misfit, underdeveloped, underpowered group of 10,000 Israelites to go and do battle with the legendary, mighty, ruthless Sisera. You get a picture in your mind of what this looked like? Look, the, the powerful Sisera, this legendary warrior, this ruthless fighter, man with an undefeated victory at war, the man that's got 31 kings following him, the man with the latest in warfare technology with 900 chariots, of iron. This guy going up against a nobody, Barak, a man who was living in Kadesh, which by the way was called a sanctuary city. That meant he was in a city that was meant for people that were hiding from violence. That's where he was when this story began. This man leading 10,000 volunteers. Like this isn't going to be a battle. It's going to be a slaughter. And everybody knew it. But yet, Deborah and Barak and 10,000 Israelites, they go into the battle anyway. I want to show you, um, uh, if there was a, a modern-day billing of what this fight was going to look like before the fight, this is what that billing would look like. <laughs> Rocky versus Drago. David, Goliath, Barak, Sisera. You get the picture, right? But we've all seen Rocky IV, right? We have, haven't we? If you haven't, go watch it. It's a great movie. We know what happens, right? The battle breaks out in verse 12, and the unthinkable happens. And we're not sure why. We think maybe there was a thunderstorm that created some difficult terrain for the, for the chariots to maneuver in. And maybe there was a break in the chain of command, but something goes haywire for the Canaanites. And in Scripture says the sister's men were in disarray. And every one of them was defeated by the Israelite army, all except for one person. One person got away. The mighty warrior, Sisera. Check out verse 15. It says, and Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. How do you like that? In case you don't know, that was an incredibly dishonorable thing for him to do, for him to leave the field of battle while his men sat there and died. He took off to save his own tail. But as we're about to find out, his dishonor has only just begun. 
And that brings us to the last character of the story, J.L. If you read through chapter 4, there's this verse that I skipped over. It kind of breaks the narrative to give you, it seems like it's random information there. Verse 11, it talks about a guy named Abar, a Kenite, separated from his family. He's got his tent pitched out uh, near Kadesh. That's J.L.'s husband. This is the arms dealer. That tent, that's where Sisera finds himself going. He leaves the field of battle and he stumbles upon their tent. But my guess is he didn't stumble upon their tent. My guess is he went straight there. He knew where he was going. Because he knew them and he thought, hey, maybe I can hide out in their tent while Barak's army goes by. And so there in verse 18, J.L. comes out of her tent and she hollers, hollers at Sisera. She goes, hey, hey, come over here. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. So I want you to get a picture of the evolution of Sisera's character. This, this mighty warrior defeated by a misfit army of volunteers flees the battle as his own men are being killed to save his own tail and is now on the run and is being told by a woman, hey, don't be afraid. So he's on the run and he's afraid. But it gets worse. J.L. takes him into the tent. This, this, get, get a picture of this. This mighty warrior, this ruthless pillager, and as horrible as this sounds, the celebrated rapist. Go check out chapter 5, verse 30 up for more on that. She takes him. She lays him down. She covers him with the rug. She pours him a, a glass of warm milk, gives it to him, and rocks him to sleep like he's just a little baby. And right before he goes to sleep, he says to JL, he says, hey, if anybody comes by asking if there's a man in this tent, tell him no. And he was right because there was no man in that tent. There was a shell of a man covering a scared little boy. And as he goes to sleep, JL takes a tent spike to the temple of his head and hammers it until it meets the dirt on the other side of his head, bringing down the mighty warrior. And in a violent twist of irony, his day ends in a manner very similar to what he planned to do to all of the people that he vanquished. So that's the story. Lovely kids before they go to bed at night. (laughs) I want to have so much that we get from this story. We get a lot from this story about character. And and, and the first thing is this, is that the main thing that I hope you get is that the pressure of a fight, the battle... When the moment gets really intense, that has a way of revealing the true depth of your character, who you really are. You see, this battle has showed the true depth of Sisera, Deborah, Barak, and Jael. So I want to quickly highlight three character attributes from this story. And the first one is this, confidence. You see, the fight, the pressure, these moments, they they have a way of revealing true Confidence, And as we see with the mighty Sisera, it'll also reveal arrogance, or what I would call the fool's gold of confidence, the, the cubic zirconia of confidence. You know, it looks, looks like a diamond on the outside, and you cut it open and you realize, oh, this is, this is worthless. Consider Deborah. The only female judge mentioned in the book of Judges yet, this, this is a woman dripping with confidence. And it's evident with how the people respect her. Brock, as far away as he is, he travels clear across the country just because she summoned him. Like that's, that's respect, but it was respect not seated in fear. It's respect seated in wisdom and discernment. And here's how I know. Think about your life. Think about those moments in your life when you know the fight's coming. You know you can't avoid it. You're going to have to contend with that fight, whatever that's going to look like. Who are the people that you want to hear from in that moment? I can think I've got a a few pivotal moments in my life where the fight was coming and it was pretty intense and I knew it. And in that moment, there was one specific person I wanted to hear from and it wasn't somebody that I was afraid of. 
It wasn't somebody that I felt like I had to walk on eggshells around. It was somebody that I respected because of their confidence, because of their wisdom, because of their discernment. And when the fight came, this is the man that I wanted to see. I go see him at pivotal moments in my life when I need direction, when I need guidance, when I need wisdom because I'm afraid. I go see him. You know why I go see him? Because I respect his confidence. Because I know the source of his confidence because he knows that the source of his confidence, it doesn't rest in his own strength. That his confidence, it rests in the strength of God that shines through his weakness. You see, worldly confidence and godly confidence look very different. You show me somebody who boasts about their own strength, and I will show you somebody who's arrogant, ignorant, and insecure. But you show me somebody who owns their weaknesses, who leads with their weaknesses. They don't hide from their weaknesses, but they're not owned by it. Somebody that understands that their weaknesses, their flaws, that's the area where the light of God shines through them. You show me that person, and I'll show you somebody who truly understands the picture of godly confidence. Somebody that knows the first step towards Jesus, that step in confidence, is a step in humility. And when the fight's coming your way, that's the type of person you want to hear from. See, even though Barack is as far away from Deborah, when the fight came, she's who he wanted to hear from because he respected her confidence. And he knew it was seated in true godly wisdom. And because of that, she could be trusted. You see, arrogance will point people to themselves. But godly confidence will point people to God. And when the fight comes, what will the arrogant do? What does Sisera do? They will sell you out the first chance they get. But confidence stays with you through it all. Do you have somebody in your circle that represents true godly confidence? Do you? And when the fight comes... Which one are you? I'm going to let you wrestle with that. I want to move on to the next attribute. And then your note says this, consistency. Throughout this story, pay attention to Deborah and how she responds in different situations. How many times does Deborah lose her cool in this story? Answer, zero. She never does. She never lets the, the moment get too big for her. She never lets her emotions run rampant. Think about all the other judges that we've talked about, Samson, Gideon, and Abimelech. These were people that were imprisoned by their emotions. But Deborah, she's emotionally engaged enough to see the hurting of her people and to be moved by empathy to do something about it, but she doesn't become an emotional wreck. She doesn't fly off the handle. She doesn't wreck the mission because the moment's too big for her because her emotions are just so out of whack. As I, as, I, as I look around, I, 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 I'm curious, how many of these people do we have in our world? People that are emotionally stable. Do you have, do you, do you have a Deborah in your story that's that steady, even keel kind of person? This is my Deborah, the Deborah of my story. I've talked about her so many times because she's a, she was an incredible woman. This is my Nana. Deborah's name meant fiery woman, and that, that's appropriate because my, my nana, she had, she had a lot of fire. She had a lot of strength. But she was always emotionally in control. She didn't, she didn't allow the situation to dictate her emotions. She didn't. As we look around at the leaders of, of our world, I'm amazed at how many of them are just imprisoned by their emotions, engaging in these never-ending shouting matches as though they accomplish anything, or the leaders that, that seem to be at the mercy of their own strength. I want you to think about that. Think about Samson. Think about his strength. He had the strength to destroy animals and people and buildings with his bare hands. But did that do him any good? No. His strength became his weakness. But you see, true strength is something that's seated in consistency. It looks like this. Restraint, knowing when to flex your muscle and when not to. That, that was my Nana. She didn't just have strength. She had consistency in her character. She knew when it was time to fight. She knew how to fight. She knew how to fight 
well. How do you handle yourself in a fight? How do you, hand, how do you play the emotional game in a fight? Whenever I talk to people that are losing the emotional game in their lives, one of the things that I'll ask them is I'll say, okay, hey, tell me about your diet, your sleep, and your exercise. Tell me about those three things. Because like it or not, your physical health and your emotional health are tied together. Are you doing the things daily that you need to do to take care of your physical self? Are you? And then I'll say, hey, tell me about some other things. Tell me, what are you hearing from God these days? In your quiet time, what are you hearing? What's God saying to you? Is there, is there a passage in, in the Bible that you found that's giving you any wisdom right now, that's helping you out at all? What, what's, that, what's that story going like? And often the response I get back is this. I know, I know I should be eating right. I know I should be eating better than I am. I know I should exercise on a routine basis. I know I should go to sleep at a decent hour. I should wake up at a, at a certain time. I know I should be in the Word. I know I, should, I know I should be praying. I know I should be talking to God. I know, I know, I know, I know. And my, my response is, do you really know? If so, why the divide between what you know and what you do? Like, I get it. There are some things in life that are difficult to bridge that gap. Like, I know if I want to slam dunk a basketball, I've got to jump 10 feet in the air. That ain't happening. That knowledge doesn't do me one bit of good. I understand the divide in that area. But taking a few minutes a day and shutting the phone down and actually being in the presence of God and experiencing quiet time and allowing Him to speak into you. Taking a moment to exchange reading an update for reading a, a passage. Maybe going to bed at a de- decent hour. Maybe doing a little exercise here. How you handle yourself during peacetime, that's going to say everything about your emotional game when the fight comes. What are your daily disciplines? What do they look like? Don't wait for the next fight to come to, to find out how the emotional game is going to go for you. Start now. See, Deborah, she didn't wait. She lived her life consistently. And because of that, when the fight came, she was ready for it emotionally, spiritually, physically. She was ready for the fight. But that's not all she had. There's one more attribute that I, w- I want to point out in your notes. That says number three, courage. This could be the most misinterpreted trait. See, before the fight, the world would have looked at the mighty Sisera and would have talked about his courage. What a, what a mighty warrior he was. What a fierce competitor. How much strength does it take? How much courage does it take to go battle somebody half your size? How much courage does it take to be the big man with the big guns imposing your will? Answer, not one bit. But what about Deborah and Barak and Jael? What kind of courage does it take to go into a battle that you know you're outmatched, you know you might die, but you do it anyway? That takes a lot of courage, doesn't it? How did they do it? How did they do it? Where did their courage come from? It came from the story that they told. They had a story that their courage was built on. It wasn't arbitrary. The story they told was a story of the Israelites living in slavery in Egypt. And how by the mercy of God, they were liberated from the slave owner, Pharaoh, the little guy, liberated by the big dog, all because of the mercy of God. And that changed everything for them. Because if God could do that then, he could do this now. Do you have a story that you tell that your courage is built on, that you point to and you say, you know, because of that, okay, I can tell you the source of my courage. With just an image, one picture, and that's this picture right here. When I see my wife, I'm, I'm very quickly reminded of the mercy of God in my life. That a, if a woman of her character can love me unconditionally, all my faults, all my flaws, all my weaknesses, all of my issues... 
that through it all, she, she stands by me. If that kind of person can love me, guess what? A lot of impossible things just became possible for me. What's the story you're telling that you build your courage on top of? And more importantly, who's in that story with you? Who's in that circle? You see, for Deborah, Barack, and Jael, the victory got, it didn't happen because of one person. It happened because of a group of people that came together. It happened because of a female judge, a, a military commander hiding from violence, and an outsider working together, forged by the purpose of God for the victory to happen on that day. Who do you have in your circle? Do you have people in your circle just because you have similar hobbies or similar interests or you kind of like the same sports team or whatever the case? Do you have people like that in your circle or do you have people in your circle that, that model true, legit, godly character, that model consistency, that model confidence, that model courage? Do you have those people in your circle? I want to show you one of my circles. I have a number of circles that I get to surround myself with, that, that I get to work with. And these are some of my favorite people that I get to work with. And this is what I love about this circle. I look at these people, and I see the faces of some of my best friends, people that I love dearly. But the funny thing is this, the world would look at this circle and say, that circle makes no sense. They shouldn't be. Because you see, you don't believe the same exact thing. You don't have the same views about this, or about this, or about this, or about this. You don't belong together. That doesn't make sense. Church, we, we began this series by asking the question, how do we respond in a divisive world? Because the world starts with a division, and then they move forward from there. But this circle, see, when we come together, we know there's something bigger than that that's at play, that we know there's something else happening that's bringing us together, that holds us together. And it's not because of what we believe about this or this or this or this. It's not because of how we vote. It's it's not because of a certain hobby. It's not because of any of that. It, it's something a lot deeper than that. We all come together. And what brings us together is this table right here. We come to this table and we all remember the same thing. You know what? We all have the same need of the mercy of God. And that's what holds us together. And so when the, when the world comes to us and they want us to register an opinion, they want us to, to lay a stake in the ground about this stance or this stance or this stance, they'll say, where do you stand? on this or this or this. When we come to this table, here's the stand we get to make. We point to the cross and we say, was the cross meant for us that our Savior carried? Absolutely. So where do we stand? We stand right in the spot where God has liberated us. That's where we stand. Was the grave meant for us? Where our sins now lay buried? Absolutely. You wanna know where we stand? We stand redeemed by the mercy of God. That's where we stand. And when we come to this table, we remember that. And so how do you respond in a divided world? You start with the unity at the table. You start with the need that we all have of the mercy of God. And then you go out into the world and talk to the division. You say, no, 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 there's a better way. There's a better way to be in community. And it starts right here. And you help people find their place at this table. And you start creating circles just like this. In a moment, you're going to be released to come partake of communion. And this table is not the church's table. It is not our table. This is an invitation for you to be part of the circle of Jesus. You don't have to believe. You don't have to be a member of this church. 
You just come with your brokenness and your baggage to experience the wholeness in Christ that is promised to you at this table. So when you come, bring all of that. Be part of Jesus's circle. Be part of community, His kingdom. The night that we commemorate and remember when we take communion was a moment similar to this. He gathered His friends and He broke the bread and He said, this is my body broken just for you. There is nothing you can do, think, decide later that can change the love that Jesus has just for you. After he gave thanks for the bread and broke it, he took the cup and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant. It symbolizes my blood shed just for you. And when you take it and when you drink it, remember the love that God has just for you. Everybody gets invited to this table. Everybody that wants to come, but I'll give you a heads up, just a warning, just so you know. When you come to this table, you're gonna find yourself in a circle of people that you probably wouldn't be around in, in the outside world because everybody gets to come to the Jesus circle. But I would invite you as you come forward to receive every step as one more step in humility. Every step, one more step towards Jesus. So Father, we thank you for this table, for the bread, for the juice, and how these, these, these physical elements represent a, a divine mystery. That through these physical things, you, you achieve a supernatural thing within us that we can't explain, but we know that it happens. So Father, we, we thank you the opportunity to come to this table to remember what you have done for us and to remember what you call us to continue to do because of this table. So Father, I pray that you use these elements to strengthen us, to remind us of your character. Remind us of the word to be about, to continue to allow the Holy Spirit to shape us, to become more and more like your son so that when the world sees us after we've left this table, they're saying, hey, I want a seat at that table. Use us, use these elements in that way in your son's name. Amen. I'm living proof What the mercy of God can do If you knew me then You'd believe me now Turn my whole world upside down Took the old and he made it new That's just what the mercy of God can do Now I'm alive to tell the story how I've overcome goodness and mercy, the power of the blood. And I'm so glad that my freedom wasn't based on what I've done. But the goodness and mercy and the power of the blood. Oh, the power of the blood Thought I deserved To be six feet beneath the earth For all the things I've done The things I've said Choices made that I regret Oh, I would still be lost Oh, but for the mercy of God yes. Now I'm alive to tell the story How I've overcome This is goodness and mercy and the power of the blood I'm 
wasn't based on what I've done The goodness and mercy And the power of the blood Yes Oh, it's only by your blood, Jesus Only by your blood Oh, we are redeemed And was the cross meant for me that my Savior carried. Now I've been made free by the mercy of God. And was the grave meant for me where my sin lay buried. Now I stand redeemed by the mercy. Come on, will you stand and sing it? And was that cross meant for me? That my Savior carried Now I've been made free By the mercy of God It was the grave meant for me Where my sin lay buried Now I stand redeemed By the mercy of God And I'm alive to tell the story how I'm overcome It's His goodness and mercy And the power of the blood And I'm so glad that my freedom Wasn't based on what I've done, no But the goodness and mercy And the power of the blood Oh, His goodness and mercy Power of the blood, only by your blood, we are free, we are redeemed by your blood, only by your blood. Sing this with us. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Sing that again. What can wash? What can wash away my sin? Nothing but your blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Yes, God, it's only by the blood of your son, Jesus. God, because we know that cross was meant for us, that grave was meant for us, but because of his sacrifice, because of our Savior, we can declare today, who was that cross? meant for me that my Savior carried. Now I've been made free by the mercy of God. Was the grave meant for me where my sin lay buried. Now I stand redeemed by the mercy Come on, if you've been redeemed, sing it one more time. Was that cross for me that my Savior carried. Now I've been made free by the mercy of God. Was that great meant for me where my goodness and mercy and the power of 
going to close in prayer as we pray through Psalm 1 through 3 like we have been doing. Psalm 1 says, blessed are those who do not walk in step with the wicked, stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers. God, we just thank you so much that you have given us and equipped us with everything that we need to be cool, even when the pressure is on and the heat is up. So lead us, guide us so that we can lead ourselves and through that others can experience your presence through us. They delight in the law of the Lord. And where do we learn the law, God? We learn it by being in your word because in your word is where we find true joy. So I pray that each and every one of us spend time, God, Mm. devoting time to be in your word, learn your teachings, learn your instructions and spread that. Spread that to your children, God those who meditate on the law day and night. So God, as we spend time every day, God, digging into your word, into your presence to calm our minds, God, we put away the electronics, we put away the stresses of our daily life, God. And God, when we spend that time in your word, we don't just put it down and go about our day like nothing happened, God, but that those words will get into our hearts and into our minds, God, so we, throughout the day, God, as we face challenges, as we face frustration, as we face unexpected things, God, that we have that in our hearts and minds, God, because we know who you are and what your words say about us so that we can be cool, God, knowing who you are day and night. Like this tree planted by streams of water, that it's, it's you, it's a source of life for us. It's you that fills us up and because it's you that's filling us up. When the division of the world faces us, when the moment gets intense and the world squeezes, what comes out of us is the fruit of your spirit. And Father, because we are planted next to you and you are feeding us, our leaves never wither. And everything that you do through us, it prospers. Church, I invite you to remain standing and join me in our purpose statement found on the screens. The purpose of Pathway Church is to connect one more.